Beat you over the head with our opinion, and we listen to yours. The new face of talk radio, Voice America Women's Radio Network. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone on the Voice America Women's Network. And joining me this morning is my co-host, Lauren Beller. Catherine Zox and Lauren Beller this morning. How are you, Lauren? Lauren is not hooked into me. Well, I'm going to tell you what we're going to have on the show this morning besides Lauren. Hopefully she is going to be here. But Lauren and I will be interviewing Linda Nazareth. She's author of The Leisure Economy, How Changing Demographics, Economics and Generational Attitudes Will Reshape Our Lives and Our Industries. That is our first guest this morning. So she's going to talk about how baby boomers actually are going to stop working and start getting into their leisure time. Also, coming up in the second half hour, Lauren, are you here? I am. Can you hear me, Catherine? I can hear you. What happened to you? I don't know. I could hear you perfectly. I was chatting and you couldn't hear me. I could. Well, anyway, here we are. Did you hear? We're going to have... This is our... How are you this morning? I am excellent, thank you. How are you? I am fine. I have, uh, you know, I was just talking about uh, who's going to be on the show this morning. Linda about these people, yeah. Yes, and then Richard Cohen. Richard Cohen is Meredith Fierra's husband. He's going to be here at 1030 and talk about his new book, which is like this incredible book about uh, chronic illness, uh, Strong at the Broken Places, and it's... Uh, the subtitle is Voices of Illness, A Chorus of Hope. It's like this incredible journey that he went through with five different people suffering from chronic illness and how they coped and their families coped, and he himself suffers from multiple sclerosis. So it's a really interesting, he's a phenomenal guy, Emmy Award-winning journalist. But, um, so Lauren. Yes? <laughs> I did my, I have a new website. You w- w- yes, com. Did you hear the champagne glasses clinking at my end? Yes. <laughs> well, uh, well, actually, I, <laughs> I I mean, it's sort of like something I'm sitting on it, and I can't really believe that it's done. It's great. I've been using it and getting a lot of responses. It's a really good website. So everybody needs to know that they can click on to com. You'll find out what's coming up each week on our show on the Catherine Zox Show on uh, the Voice America Women's Network, and there'll be just you know a little bit of a tease, and then there'll be uh, all my e-cards that I send out to all the people that I know to tell them who and what and where is on the show will be on the website, plus stuff that I do. Uh, just you know, I think um, you can tune in or you can uh, click on the website, and uh, you'll find out what's happening with uh, Catherine Zox and the Catherine Zox Show. Very cool. Congratulations, Catherine. Thank you. are now you. on the electronic map. And now, exactly, yeah. So what do you think happened uh, in, uh, let's talk politics a little bit. Are you excited? Oh, okay, I'm ready to, I, well, I, I think that there's, um, you know, whether people are for or against Hillary, I think that it's about breaking a glass ceiling for women. Well, what do you think about this big hoopla? Because she had tears in her eyes and she oh, cried God, a little. I think that's ridiculous, and I think it's great to see. And I, you know, it's funny. I thought that you and I were going to be on different ends of the spectrum, but I think it was a real moment, and someone sort of acknowledged her for how hard it's been. And in that acknowledgement, she showed her true side. You know, it's my belief. 
Yeah. I don't even know if it's a true side, Lauren. It's just another part of her. And I think what the press, some of the press, especially the white-wing press, are trying to say is that this is her side. She can't be commander-in-chief because she had tears in her eyes. This is just a part of who she is. It's a good part of who she is. She's also very strong. I mean, they criticize of who all of we are. It's all, yeah. Uh, Mitt Romney cries. Actually, this morning, Meredith Vieira on the Today Show said, you know, the crier, Bill Clinton is the crier. He's the one who always had tears in his eyes. Actually. Yeah. And, you know, they women are held to a higher standard if they, have, if they show some kind of emotion, if they cry, if there are tears, and somehow it becomes a weakness, that we're weak, that we're vulnerable. Mitt Romney, I can't remember what the speech was or where he was, but he cried. No one said that about him. It's true. It's because a female cries. It's maybe she can't do the job. Maybe she won't be strong enough for the position. Oh my goodness, makes me crazy. I just applaud the realness of it. Yeah, exactly. So do I, and I think it's a really good thing. Now, Lauren is here with us. Another Lauren. Lauren uh, Nazar. Linda is here. Was Linda here? No, I'm not. <laughs> Linda, Lauren, she's not here yet. Okay. So anyway, uh, no, I do too. I. Absolutely applaud her realness, her vulnerability. I don't even want to use the word vulnerability. That's not a good word. I think it's just uh, like honest emotion, honest, you know, sharing where you're really at. And I think really where it came from was that question that acknowledged that this has been a hard journey and how do you keep doing it, you know? Yeah, and I think she was exhausted. They were all exhausted. I mean, it's a landmine for a woman to be running for president of the United States. Whether you're for her or against her, it's a landline. Yeah. Uh, you know what? I think one of the good things, though, about this election and I want is that we do have the Democratic Party has three good, intelligent candidates, which is I think that on some level is very reassuring, at least to me. Okay. I agree. Yeah. I mean, you have very viable candidates, very smart people and individuals with different kinds of experiences, but that's okay. Um, you know, as a, a woman, I just, you and I keep saying this on the show, you know, you elect a woman, it will change the, it will change the world. It will change the world. It will absolutely change the world. And I agree with you, the fact that we have three really strong candidates on the Democratic side is, it's, it's a good thing. <laughs> At this point, they're all seeming, they seem so qualified. And it's interesting that I think it's challenging right now on the Republican side. People are, um, Scrambling on that side, it seems a bit more obviously playing very interesting tactics that we've never seen before. And from there, we'll see where it goes. We will see where it goes. But uh, more people are voting than ever, they say. Well, of course, one of the, the, uh, the political pundits said, well, they should. I mean, this thing has been going, the, the election, pre-election stuff has been going on for a year, so you are going to get more people out there and interested, and, and that's a good thing, right? I think so. I think that's a really good thing. More voices heard, more opinions um, documented. Lauren, did you hear about, you know, we always talk about, though, we talk about Hillary Clinton. I always think of her as uh, uh, an alpha woman. Now there's a new uh, type of woman called the beta woman. Do you, have you heard about that? No. <laughs> you always have such good feedback. <laughs> beta moms are in and alpha moms are out. And so what's a beta mom? A beta mom is, listen to this, the rise of the slacker mom was only one of several stories cropping up in the domestic sphere this year. Okay, so in other slacker words... mom is in? Beta moms are back. So, so a beta mom is a slacker mom? 
slacker is not the best term, but let me just tell you, beta moms, this is what beta moms are. But it's not such a bad thing because it fits into your whole work balance thing as, as a coach, as a life coach, because beta moms show, you know, lead, they, this is how they describe it, lead her daughter's Girl Scout troop, her son's soccer team, do all the stuff that she, you know, whip up these great meals and stuff. But beta moms are not perfect. That's the whole thing. So that expectation, uh, uh, okay. see, okay. they don't, yeah, they're described as, um, they don't have a, a meltdown if they forget to pack the milk money for their son's lunch. You know, they like they don't have to be the perfect mom. Oh, that's refreshing, isn't that refreshing? So you know, that's really have... refreshing. So that's on the is it on the rise or is it was it were? It's a trend for 2008. It... Trend for 2008. Beta so I love anyway. the trends you find. <laughs> Well, here, okay, speaking of trends, we have Linda Nazareth. Now we have Linda on the show. She's the author of The Leisure Economy, How Changing Demographics, Economics, and Generational Attitudes Will Reshape Our Lives and Our Industries. Now, Linda, she's an economist, an author, and a television broadcaster, and she has also been quoted in the Wall Street Journal and Wired Magazine. Apparently, right now we live in a time crunch economy. We all know that. We don't have enough time for all the items on our calendars, whether we are alpha moms or beta moms. But as this large cohort of baby boomers move out of their high-stress years, the reverse will happen. And what's going to happen is, according to Linda, a significantly larger proportion of North Americans will soon have more unscheduled time than they've had for decades. So this is going to be the leisure time that the baby boomers are going to be faced with. So what's going to be happening? A radical shift. The time crunch economy will become the leisure economy. Here to talk to us about it is Linda. Welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Catherine. Nice to have you on. Good to be here. Yes. Okay. So this is a real big turnaround, isn't it, to uh, jump from this time crunch economy into a leisure economy? Um, it is, but we you know we're seeing the shift. I mean, you're talking about the shift from alpha moms to beta moms. It's a bit of that because the boomers are all about being alphas, right? Working yeah. all out, you know, commuting long distances getting their kids everywhere, and they're moving away from those years. The highest stress years are your 30s and your 40s, so you're really working all out, and yet you have to do other things too, so you're time crunch. And we've kind of created that economy-wide, society-wide. It's fashionable to say, I'm really busy, if somebody asks how you are. Now, boomers moving on, and Gen Y coming up, that's the 20-somethings, and also Gen X, they actually don't want to be like the boomers. They're okay not being alphas all the time. They value time off as much as they value the rewards from work, or at least they say they do. And they're going into a workforce that really needs them. So you put it together, and you get this leisure economy, which, as you say, is kind of radical. It is radical. So what? how does that impact, let's say, we have a couple more minutes before we take the break, and let's, let's just start with business. How is that going to impact business? Like if you have the generation X and Ys going to work and not with the same kind of values or attitudes as you're saying as the baby boomers did, uh, they say, you know, they want time off to be with their families. Is that what you're talking about? They want time off to pursue their passions. They want to integrate that into their work. That's right. You know, boomers raised them this way with lots of different interests, whether it was soccer or it was synchronized skating or swimming or whatever else. You know, they have very full lives, and they don't want to give that up. And they, uh, right now, they're asking maybe for sabbaticals because they haven't raised their kids yet. You know, they want time off to travel, and they don't necessarily want to be there all weekend. So that's the first thing I've heard from college recruiters, that this is scaring some of the employers. I mean, they didn't really have a generation of kids who said, I'm not available to work every Friday night. Yeah. 
but they're coming into a workforce that needs them. There's an unemployment rate for some college grads of 2%. Pretty different than if you came in in the 80s where, you know, you were begging for a job. So they're, even with the economy slowing down, they're in a good position right now. And uh, tensions going on already between managers and the new entrants. But you know what? Soon Gen X will be leading and Gen Y will be in the uh, 30-something ages where they're raising their kids and they're going to be even more vocal about saying, I want to try part-time. Phenom- that is a really interesting phenomenon. It, I mean, as you say, it will impact work and also the family. Now, we're going to take a short break, Linda, but when we come back, I also want to now I want to get into so all these baby boomers who are no longer, quote, working, what are they going to do with their leisure time? You're listening to Catherine Zox. I'm Catherine Zox, and you're listening to the Women's Network. I'm your social worker with a microphone, and we'll be back in a few minutes. We talk with you, not at you. We're Voice America, Women's Radio Network, the new face of talk radio. I have three children. And I've been raising my 16-year-old sister. Mary Gallagher and her family shared a two-bedroom apartment with eight people. Now Habitat for Humanity is helping her build a simple, decent, affordable home of her own. When we first found out that we were getting a Habitat home, it was like a dream. I kept saying, don't anybody wake me up. Not only is Mary helping build her own home, she'll buy it with a no-profit, zero-interest mortgage to keep it affordable. Habitat came out and built my home. And when Mary started building her house, I wanted to come out and give a hand. We're not just building Mary's house, we're building a neighborhood. There's several more to be built this year, and I look forward to working on each of their houses and seeing the joy of their face when they open the door to their brighter future. Habitat for Humanity. Building homes, changing lives. Support the work in your community. Visit Habitat.org. I feel very blessed. God has answered all of my prayers. We are home. Ladies, are you looking for a place where you can talk candidly about anything and everything? Well, here it is. Timeless Women Speak on the Voice America Women's Channel. We'll talk about sexuality, age-proofing your career, finding your passion and purpose, keeping your brain power, keeping your marriage fresh, dating for grown-ups, plastic surgery, surviving our beauty culture, and much more. Tune in Tuesdays at 11 a.m. Pacific to Timeless Women Speak with Dr. Nancy O'Reilly on the Voice America Women's Channel channel radio that talks with you not at you voice america women's radio network you're listening to the katherine zoff show on the voice america women's channel if you'd like to join our conversation this morning call now the toll-free number is 866-472-5788 that number again is 866-472-5788 Welcome back to the Catherine Zox Show. I am Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and this is the Voice America Women's Channel. Thanks for joining us this morning. And joining me is Linda Nazareth. She is an author, economist, television broadcaster, and her new book is The Leisure Economy, How Changing Demographics, Economics, and Generational Attitudes Will Shape or reshape, not shape, but will reshape our lives and industries. Before we took the break, we were actually, Linda, we're kind of going into how the impact of having the generation and the generation X and Y, how they will impact on business, i.e., they're not going to work 24-7. They have uh, different values. They want to be with family, work, balance, those kinds of things. But now let's get into the baby boomers 
retiring, and I put retiring in quotes, and I think maybe you would too, leisure time. What is? What are we going to do with all these baby boomers, and what does it mean for us, the economy, uh, baby boomers? Uh, what is leisure time? Well, this is a, a huge question. You know, the retiring, you're right to put it in brackets because baby boomers don't really want to even hear that word. You know, if you ask them, they get a little bit defensive and say, well, I'm not going to sit around in a rocking chair. How about and a lot defensive? I think you're not. <laughs> yeah, you're right. <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, many of them will stick around longer, partly because they need the money, because not all boomers got lucky during the dot-com years. A lot of them aren't really in the place they'd like to be because they're not big on budgets, okay? And retiring and living on less doesn't sound like a lot of fun. But eventually most people do retire. Health concerns or the workforce perhaps forcing them out tend to make people leave eventually, even if they wait a little bit longer. So you'll get this large group of people who've been fairly driven through their working lives and they will have to find something else to do. And what will they do? Well, maybe they'll volunteer. And a lot of them really are at a place in their lives where they'd like to give back, like to make a contribution. Unfortunately, a lot of the nonprofits aren't really rich for them. I mean, what kind of jobs are available from a lot of volunteer organizations? Well, maybe worthy things like handing out the magazines at the hospital, which is great and we need that. But I think a lot of the boomers are going to say, uh, I don't think so. I'm just retiring from, you know, decades in a financial services organization and I'm not going to do that. In fact, I tell the story in the leisure economy of a woman who was in exactly that position who wanted to, to really make a contribution and couldn't really find a fit and walked away. And I hope that doesn't happen. Now, the other thing, of course, is how well, I don't even want to leave that point because I think that is critical because you have all this, you have a wealth of information, uh, experience, education with these boomers, as you say, retiring or semi-retiring. I mean, they can go into any of these not-for-profits, like charities and stuff, and, you know, somebody who's been a comptroller at a major corporation, hey, you can use them, not, you know, as you say, making beds at Ronald McDonald House. You can do a lot more than that. What a waste of talent if if these charities or these not-for-profits don't incorporate them into their uh, into their volunteer programs. Absolutely, and there's a move afoot to make that happen, but I got a little discouraged when I was researching the leisure economy because I talked to non-profits, I talked to some of the volunteer organizations in the U.S., I talked to individuals who tried to find a meaningful role, and I didn't really see it. So that's one challenge. And the other challenge for the boomers, though, Catherine, is just letting them enjoy leisure because they've been working so hard they haven't really developed any hobbies. You know, they're a lot less likely than their parents were to be readers. They do not have as many skills in fixing up their own houses. They cook less. And they certainly don't know how to knit or make little models out of stuff. My mother is the best knitter. She is so fantastic. I can't even sew a button on for my, I couldn't for my kids. But you know, I'm a baby boomer. Yeah, people do change. Though I interviewed someone else for the leisure economy who was a math teacher for decades, and she was very, very devoted to her work, spent many hours in this, and then she retired. She took actually early retirement because it made financial sense. Found some time on her hands, started working on math textbooks, but somebody also invited her to try rug hooking, which was kind of a joke with her. And she got so into it that now she's actually selling some of the supplies. Uh, spending a lot of time on this, speaking to other people in the field. It's a new passion, which certainly for many decades she wouldn't even have had time to consider. Does the concept of re-careering come into this this new leisure economy? I mean, I'm using the word career maybe because, you know, baby boomers don't want to think of themselves doing leisure. I mean, actually the example you just gave, Linda, I mean, you know, she couldn't just sit at home and you know, hook rugs. Now it becomes more than that, right? It does. But, yeah. you know, sort of on her own timetable, I think the boomers will eventually find that. 
it's going to be hard for them to retool from leaving and getting into work at 8 and getting home at 6. But I do think they'll make the adjustment. And I think when most people discover leisure, having a couple hours in the afternoon when you're not sitting in an office tower, they eventually like it. But there's a huge sense of guilt, I think, associated with it for the boomers. And they don't want to be accused of having time on their hands. And one of the first stories I tell in the book is of a woman I know who left banking to uh, go on her own and do some consulting. She was fairly high up in an organi- a large organization. And she said what she found is she had a lot of leisure time. But it was something she absolutely could not talk about to the people she knew who were still in the old organization. It's just not acceptable, even though she's making as much money, to say, I have time now. Well, does that mean that your whole, I guess, your your personality or feeling that you're important or all of those issues come up? You can't... Uh, you know, if you if you're retired, then you're some a person, persona non grata kind of like you know, hey, you just don't have the status, and or you don't feel like you have the same status and prestige, and that would that that will be that'll be an issue for the baby boomers. Absolutely, I think they have been brought up and they've had to compete, brought up to believe those prizes were really important and not working, not that acceptable. You know, some boomer women obviously spent time with their kids and stayed home, but for the majority who worked, for men and for a lot of professional women. Uh, that retirement thing is something they don't want to talk a whole lot about. But, you know, very different for the other generations, especially Generation Y. They have so much less to prove. When I interviewed Gen Ys for the leisure economy, a lot of them were actually fairly dismissive of boomer women. They said, you know what, they should just relax. And Gen Ys more likely to say, I want to spend some time home with my kids. And this is true for men or women. So they were not the first in their families necessarily to go to college, and they were certainly not the first female managers. Somebody's gotten there before them, so just a lot less to prove, and that will shape their decisions. You know, it's interesting you say that, Linda, because I think also not only does it come from them, sort of an intra-psychic thing, but maybe Gen Y and Gen X don't realize that in order for them to be able to do that, the 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 external, the macro, the, the institutions have to facilitate that, which they do now. So that makes it different. They have the opportunity to do it. They're in companies where, yeah, you can take maternity leave or you can take different kinds of vacations or trips. Or, so, you know, the whole the whole sort of economy facilitates them being able to do that, to have that balance. Absolutely. They're really lucky. I mean, they're coming in as the economy is pretty strong. And, yes, it may slow down this year, but still we aren't going back to the old double-digit interest rates and uh, crushing recession. And at the same time, you have boomer retirements coming up. Now, will it be every single Gen Y who stays lucky? No, it won't. The more education you have, the better your future, uh, the better your prospects. But in some professions, like accounting, say, you have a lot more leeway than you did a generation ago. You may still have to work hard, but you know you can at least raise the question of working from home or um, perhaps asking for part-time, which yeah, that's a couldn't great, even well, come Being up. able to work at home on your computer is a huge it advantage is. for all of us, whatever generation you're from. But now what about these the baby boomers? Where are they going to live? I mean, I know that the state of Florida you can buy right now yes. if you want to. I mean, condos are so cheap because no, you know, the boomers are not going to go to Florida and sit on the beach and and uh, figure out where they're going for dinner in the evening uh, or play golf or whatever they do. But so now where do the baby, where, where did you find? I mean, I'm really curious about that. Where do they want to live? Country, city, what? Well, the wealthier among them probably will look to the cities because cities offer so much in terms of not just health care but 
entertainment and cultural opportunities, a lot of them are going to move, not necessarily because they want to move, but because they didn't save as much as they would have liked to, but where they have their assets are sitting in those big suburban homes outside Boston or Chicago or obviously Washington, D.C. area through Virginia. You know, that's where a lot of their money is tied up. So it makes sense to liquidate those, go somewhere smaller. It's going to be tricky to find the right fit, though. They say they want kind of a Mayberry experience, some of them, but honestly what they want is Mayberry with a Starbucks. I don't think they really want the small-time life, small-town life, uh, and some of them may move and then find that doesn't work for them, but they will move. I mean, they're a more mobile generation than their parents were. They're more likely to have traveled, more likely to have moved, and I think they will perhaps pull out stakes. So we're going to see a bit of an impact on the real estate market. Yeah, I think that's interesting. I, I also find that some of the baby boomers that I have talked to uh, want to follow their children, which is another interesting concept. I don't know if you found that when you were doing the research for the book, Linda, but they will, because they have the opportunity to perhaps go where they want to go, and if their children have moved to another city and their grandchildren are there, they actually pick up and, and buy an apartment uh, and or house and move to communities where their uh, adult children are to be with them and or to be with their grandchildren. Absolutely. I did find that, and that will be interesting to see whether it continues. But Gen Y has tend to be very family-focused, and they will want the grandparents close to them, and it may make sense for some of the boomers, if they're young enough and can help enough, uh, to be close to the, the grandchildren. So watch for a lot of, uh, a lot of uprooting. A lot. What, did you, what was that term you just Uprooting. used? Uprooting. 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 Leaving the communities and starting somewhere else. Yeah, which is kind of scary. I mean, if you, I guess if you have the opportunity or you have saved enough, you can keep one house and, and maybe experiment and rent an apartment and see how you like it if you're moving to another city or kind of following your children. Um, but there are those kinds of options. All right, so what, you know, we've got a couple more minutes left. What do we say? Where is this all going to take us? What do we do? How can we prepare? Is there anything that we can do as individuals? I'm a baby boomer, and, and Lauren is a baby boomer. We span sort of the, the uh, 20, you know, that 20-year period. Mm-hmm. Well, I think everybody needs to think about this. This is one of the biggest economic drivers of the next decade. If you're running a business, you probably think of the time crunch economy when you're making your decisions. You assume people don't have much time. But think about it. If you if you have a store, think about how you can get people to stay in there longer because they will have time to stay somewhere longer. Think about what you need to sell. It may not be every convenience product. People may be cooking again. Uh, they may be learning to cook again for budget reasons and because they have more time. Think about the leisure industries and wh- where you can see growth there. I you know, a lot of boomers want to start new companies. I've uh, recommended this book for them, and I think some of them have found it a good fit because we're talking about the trends and where there may be some opportunities. If you are running a business and you're a manager, you need to think about this in terms of what your uh, your incoming employees will want. And certainly if you're an investor, you want to think about this because this is where the opportunities are. Yeah, I think trends, very important, as you say. And if you are considering and you are jumping into that leisure economy, wanting to start a new business, got to know what the trends are. So go out and, and uh, take a look at, at Linda's book, Linda Nazareth. Great having you on the show this morning. The Leisure Economy, How Changing Demographics, Economics, and Generational Attitudes Will Reshape Our Lives and Industries. You can purchase it online, bookstores everywhere. Have a great day, Linda. Thanks so much, Catherine. And just want to mention my website, leisureeconomy.com. I would love to hear from people. Terrific. Leisureeconomy.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zock Show. And coming up next is Strong at the Broken Places, Voices of Illness, A Chorus of Hope, Richard M. Cohen, New York Times bestselling author of Blindsided. I'm your social worker with a microphone on the Women's Network. We'll be back in a minute.
radio that informs, entertains, and enlightens you. Voice America, Women's Radio Network. Inner Health Through Homeopathy, hosted by Melissa Birch, CCH, with Dr. Tim Stryker. This show features a weekly discussion about homeopathy, a holistic approach to health care which treats ailments by bringing the entire body into balance. Homeopathy encompasses and examines the makeup of the entire person instead of focusing solely on a disease or ailment. The healing process involves physical, mental, and emotional changes which come from a wellness within. Homeopathic remedies go far beyond an alleviation of symptoms. They can restore harmony to the body and open paths to a higher level of awareness. Each week, Melissa Birch, CCH, explores a different health issue and individual healing processes with Tim Stryker, MD. Tune in every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel for inner health through homeopathy. Dad, can I ask you something? Sure. There's this girl I kind of like. Say no more. You just have to impress her. Okay, but how? Just, I don't know, pick up a lot of heavy things around her. Like what? You know, desks, chairs, people. Grunt if you have to. Grunt? Yeah, be like, oh! Uh, There you go. You don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. When you adopt a child from foster care, just being there makes all the difference. To learn more, call 1-888-200-4005. A public service announcement brought to you by Adopt U.S. Kids, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and the Ad Council. For the most current and up-to-date information and options in childbearing, family health, and parenting, tune in to Celeste Ranese's Timely Topics in Childbirth, broadcasting every Wednesday at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. If you don't know your options, you don't have any. We don't beat you over the head with our opinion, and we listen to yours. The new face of talk radio, Voice America, Women's Radio Network. You're listening to The Catherine Zoff Show on the Voice America Women's Channel. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. Welcome back. I'm Catherine Zoff, your social worker with a microphone. Thanks for joining us this morning on the Women's Network. And joining me this morning is my co-host, Lauren Deller. If you are just joining us... And coming up in this hour is Richard Cohen, author of Strong at the Broken Places, Voices of Illness, A Chronic, A Chorus of Hope. Well, Lauren, what, did you, what do you think? Uh, you know, it's interesting, this whole issue of the leisure economy and work and balance and being able to do that. Very difficult for the baby boomers to get out there and do that. And I think that she's totally on to something. I think, you know, from a big fish perspective, it's what we're trying to do is help current baby boomers, which I never thought about it that way, try to get out of that cycle because it's not a healthy cycle. You mean get, not feeling like they can take leisure time? Exactly. And that, it's like and that standard answer of how are you so busy, and that's like a good thing. I'm so not stressed able out. To, You're right. Yeah. It, it, yeah I'm able so to say the truth like um, I'm taking a break. I'm enjoying life. You know, you, it's like not okay to say that. Where, yeah, I know. It's like, and I feel that way myself. It's like somebody will say, well, what are you doing today? And I feel like I have to, like, tell them everything I'm doing today just to justify who I am, like I'm doing. Exactly. Yeah. And, that, and I'm still. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry, no, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I'm still somebody who takes trips, likes to 
and be entertained, have a boyfriend. I love all that stuff, but still I have that, that kind of like, I would never want to say, well, I'm just, you know, I'm home for the day and I'm reading a book. Exactly. <laughs> oh, I would I never so. say that. But yeah. I think I think that we have something to learn here. Like, it's, it is okay to say that. And what are we teaching our kids, and me more so you, um, because your kids are adults at this point now, you know, basically. Yeah. But so what are your time. We have to get involved. We have our next guest on Great. the line, Richard Sorry. Cohen. Richard M. Cohen, author of Strong at the Broken Places, Voices of Illness, A Chorus of Hope. And he's an Emmy Award-winning journalist. He, and in his book, Cohen examines chronic illnesses that, and I, this, this expression, citizens of sickness face every day as Richard himself fights his own battle with multiple sclerosis. Nice to have you on the show this morning, Richard. Thanks Thank for joining you. us. Thank you. It's nice to be here. It's a fabulous book. Actually, I spent all day Saturday. I woke up in the morning and I just I was going to just read a little bit Saturday, Sunday, read the whole thing all the way through. I was mesmerized. Well, you know, these are these are profiles of five individuals dealing with very serious illnesses, and I I found their voices to be authentic. They're powerful people, and they were very brave. I mean, they putting your life in somebody else's hands, you know, opening up about uh, the process of dealing with illness. Is really Do you think, daunting. Richard, they trusted you more because you obviously you know what it's like? I mean, you're there yourself, so you had a real kind of intimate window into what they were, what they are going through. And, and maybe mention, because they were five very different kinds of chronic illnesses, right. what are they? Well, one has, one has ALS, one has non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, one has Crohn's disease, one has muscular dystrophy. And I wanted very much to include a mental illness because that accounts for a huge piece of the the chronic illness pie. And um, so there's a guy with bipolar disorder. And I think the answer to your question is that I I wrote a, a memoir uh, that was published four years ago uh, called Blindside. It was really an account of my you know, my struggle to have a real normal life, to have a, a career and a family while dealing with both uh, multiple sclerosis and colon cancer. And um, they all read the book before they agreed to do to do this one. And I think, yeah, I think that um, what, what, what people who don't deal with health issues probably don't realize is that, um, is that people who are ill reach out to each other you know that there's a tremendous sense of support in the community, and I think we draw strength from each other. I think that um, I think we embrace each other, and uh, and I think that uh, the fact that I have dealt with illness uh, made it easier for them to open it up to me. And so, Richard, what would you say would be the common threads that each one of you have? I mean, reaching out to one another, obviously, but were there some common threads, even though that each one, each individual has their own unique kinds of problems associated with their own illness? Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, every illness is different. Um, you know, it, it, illnesses bring on just a range of problems, a range of symptoms, a range of limitations, but... The emotional fallout, what you have to cope with on a day-to-day basis, uh, is very similar. There's a lot of common ground, and um, and so what these people talked about and what they were dealing with uh, in their own stories um, were very common themes, such as um, diminished uh, sense of self, uh, 
you know, a, uh, a very fragile self-image. Um, there are practical questions, people having trouble getting or keeping jobs because of illness, um, problems with um, financial and I think particularly, uh, at least as I read the book, you know, with men, you know, what it means to be a man when you suffer from a chronic illness is somewhat different than women, I think, because this whole idea of masculinity and what it is, that came out with, I think, a buzz. Correct. Uh, yeah, no, that's very true. Buzz, buzz was very open about the fact that cancer has taken away what to him was a very traditional identity of the man in the house, you know, and he saw himself or had seen himself as the the provider and uh, and the head of the household, uh, which may, you know, seem a little bit archaic, um, but he buzzes from southern Indiana, uh, a very conservative traditional area and i think it was very hard for buzz to deal with a very um, clearly shifting role but you know what he does it he does, he does it, it and he does it on a daily basis and the other thing richard i, I guess what i the, the whole concept of integrating illness into your identity i mean and you had to do that at what age 25 years old when you were di- diagnosed with ms and Correct. like um, I was thinking about Ben, the, the the young man who had muscular dis, who has muscular dystrophy mm-hmm. in a wheelchair. Um, that's really difficult to do. To uh, you know, and I talk to us a little bit about that. Well, it is difficult to do. And Ben, Ben was a remarkable story because Ben was in high school when I started talking to him, and he's now halfway through school, through college, and. He has grown up enormously, and um, he's dealing with a lot of the issues that really plagued him. And, I mean, Ben had a fear of how others saw him, which, by the way, is a very common theme. In, in other words, you are your illness? You are your illness, and people don't get past it. And, look, we live in a culture that celebrates beauty and physical perfection and I think people don't want to see us the first two sentences of this book are these are faces of illness in America do not look away and I think that uh, all of us who deal with illnesses are very used to the idea of people sort of marginalizing us people sort of putting us in a separate category that may be a little bit condescending and uh, and make life just a little bit difficult for for those of us who have these problems. To, hey Richard, on the lighter with. side, you gave the example, and I identified with this one. I guess you were waiting for a train to go from New York to Washington, right. and the conductor looks at, uh, around and sees who has to get on the train and goes, well, we've got, and you, you walk with a cane, well, we have three canes here. We've got to put them on first. And you gave her your cane. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, seriously, I mean, people objectify us. People uh, people don't see past the wheelchair. They don't yeah. see past the walker. You're the and guy in the wheelchair. I just, because I'm going to share just a short personal story, but I was in the doctor's office getting a, an echocardiogram, and the nurse, I go in there and go to the desk, and I'm talking low because it's not anybody's business why I'm there, and she screams out, your, our echo is here. <laughs> yeah, no, that's exactly right. That's yeah. exactly right. And, uh and people, you know, I don't think people do it maliciously. I think they just do it thoughtlessly. And by the way, 
I think that physicians, you know, fall into the same trap. I think physicians see us too often as cases and not people, too too much as a collection of symptoms and not enough as simply human beings. And that was one thing, Richard, that was unique about your book, I found, because it was a book about the lives of all of these individuals managing their chronic illnesses, and you really didn't get into, and a lot of books do, how wonderful the medical establishment is and all the heroics that they do. That really did, actually what came across it is that a lot of, uh, many of these people were very, very disenchanted with their medical care and, and the way physicians would treat them. I think that's very true, and uh, I think that uh, too often the medical profession is oblivious to the emotional needs of of their patients, and they don't see the whole person. You know, they just see the the, sink, the simple, isolated physical problem, and they just don't pay. Too often, they don't pay enough attention to the whole person, and. Uh, you know, I think that's one of the things that has to change. I mean, what what I would like to see happen from this book is to start a dialogue. I think that that the sick need sick people, and I and I'm one of them, draw tremendous strength from each other. You know, they, they, there's a real longing for a sense of community. You know, we we've started a website um, based on the book, and it's strongatthebrokenplaces.com. And I've asked people on the last pa- last page of the book to share their stories, and and it's already becoming a very active marketplace. And and that's because people with illness so long to hear from each other. Yeah, and on your website too. And I want to tell everyone because it's not just the individuals you want to share the story, but also the caregivers, because chronic illness is a family disease, as you point out in the book, and so I guess this is an opportunity both for those suffering from a chronic illness, but also the caregivers and the families to tell their stories. Absolutely. Caregivers are too often forgotten, and um, they, they bear the burden of living their own lives, sometimes having to be, you know, the, the providers and also taking care of somebody who's not well. And that's a huge job. Yeah, and I think the last thing, we only have about a minute left, but one of the other things that you did, and you kind of just touched on this, I mean, you actually sat down, all of you, all six of you, uh, at Harvard Medical School with some of the, the students and the professors and, and gave them some insight into, uh, into well, all of what you, you covered in your book. Correct, and, and you know what? They were mesmerized, the students and the interns and the residents, because... This had never been done before, and there was nothing clinical about what we did at Harvard. We simply told a very, a series of very human stories. And, you and we have to say goodbye, and I want to make sure everybody's strong at the broken places. You can go to the website, strongatthebrokenplaces.com, Voices of Illness, A Chorus of Hope. Richard, thanks so much for being on the show this morning. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to The Catherine Zock Show, and you are listening on the Voice America Women's Network. I'm your social worker with a microphone, and we'll be back in a few minutes, so please don't go away. Talking about what you care about. News, relationships, health, finances. Voice America, Women's Radio Network.
tired of those fad diets and exercise routines that you don't stick with? Want to find a better way to incinerate fat and energize your life without those worthless pills or gimmicks? Then tune in every Friday afternoon at 2 p.m. Pacific to Fitness Truth with host Zach Hunt and A.J. Roberts. Achieve your weight loss and fitness goals and maintain them for the rest of your life. The rest of your life. That's Fitness Truth, Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. When I have an asthma attack, I feel scared. It's like tiny nails in the air I start. Did you know your child's asthma attacks can be triggered by things like shower curtains, a blanket, even a teddy bear? I feel like I'm choking. And there are many other things in your home and your child's classroom you may not know about. For the latest information, call 1-866-NO-ATTACKS. Sometimes I, my parents have to take me to the hospital. Help prevent your child's asthma attacks and avoid the emergency room. Call toll-free 1-866-NO-ATTACKS. That's 1-866-662-8822. Or visit www.noattacks.org. I don't want to feel like a fish with no water. Brought to you by the EPA and the Ad Council. Let's face it, hormones happen. Whether you're a male or female, hormones have an impact on your overall well-being. Dr. Hart brings to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel timely topics that answer your lifelong questions about hormones in men, women, and teens. Tune in to Optimal Wellness every Wednesday at 12 p.m. Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Optimal Wellness. Live life well. Live life long. Live life to the fullest. We talk with you, not at you. We're Voice America, Women's Radio Network, the new face of talk radio. You're listening to The Catherine Zoff Show on the Voice America Women's Channel. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. Your social worker with the microphone on the Voice America Women's Network with Lauren Deller. Uh, Lauren, I was just what I told Richard. That book is just so inspiring. It is just one of the best books I've read in a long time, and I just I do recommend it. And what I did was it's strong at the broken places. I mean, Voices of Illness, A Chorus of Hope. Um, I went back and read. I, I just started actually his memoir, which was the New York Times bestseller, Blindsided. Uh huh. Absolutely. I mean, it's just amazing. He was 25 years old when he was diagnosed with MS. At like, you know, he was this young and very uh, out there kind of guy, a journalist, a, a producer, a television producer in Washington D.C. And uh, world. And it was what? He was ready at 25. Like you have the attitude that you can go tackle the world, and then to get that news. Uh, and, and and like uh, the whole concept of denial. I mean, he describes in the book at first what happened was he was in Washington and he was on some assignment and he was walking up the stairs. I don't know if it's the Capitol. It doesn't. And he he, he his legs started to buckle. Right. And like you know, you take maybe I'm tired. It was very hot. It was summertime. That kind of thing. And then he was in the co- he was in the room getting or he was getting some coffee and he was holding the the uh, the coffee pot and it just kind of fell out of his hands. And yeah, all of these kinds of things. But one of it, he 
his father, who is a physician, Richard, who's about my age, uh, who's in his 80s, has MS himself. And his grandmother had it. So I think, you know, Lauren, with all of this new this gene therapy and stuff, I would imagine that a lot of these, some of these chronic illnesses now, you're going to, not all of them, obviously, but some of them are run in families, that you'll find that there's a, a gene connection. I'm sure that uh, yeah. it sounds like such a new, people, we're going to be, I think we'll see more of that. More. Well, now, you just had a baby. I was curious, because I know when I, when I had my babies, uh, I was tested for Tay-Sachs because that's a disease of Ashkenazi Jews and they test the mother and if she's, you have to have both parents have to have the gene in order for the child to have Tay-Sachs disease. So if the mother doesn't carry the gene, then you don't have to test the father. But if she does, then you need to test the father. Now, you just had a baby. Do you, what, did it, what do they test you for? I mean, are there any, is there a, there must be more things. So much more to this topic. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, this will be, you know, we'll go on next week. Maybe we'll finish up with it. But, but let me say this: I I feel strongly about you, you know, using our medical, our medical Eastern medicine, Western medicine, I should say, is really amazing in that we can study our genes the way we can. I had a full amni, I had a full amniocentesis on Sierra, knowing I, I wanted to know that she had every chromosome and you know, I wanted to know it all and when you find that's such a relief to know that everything's okay. Now that's different than you know a disease like MS which is not something in the, that you can find out from your genes but we can know so much more of these. Things. But I'm talking about amniocentesis you're testing to see whether or not the baby is okay right? Exactly yeah. Okay but these that's different than having a blood test where they test to see whether or not you the mother has the gene that carries, let's say, I see. Yes, very cystic different. fibrosis or Tay-Sachs or whatever the disease is. I would have been, as a mother, I would have been willing to do any test that sort of helps you know what you know, if you're bringing a healthy child into the world. Whether but it wasn't required? Healthy, it wasn't required, no. Absolutely not required. Was the test for Tay-Sachs, that wasn't required? No, it was not required. That's interesting. But but I think if I was, if I wanted to, let's say the words, um, they present you with lots of opportunity along the way, they, the medical community, to say, would you like to be tested for this? Would you like to be tested for that? You know, certain things. And anything that I was, I anybody thought was a red flag, I would say, yes, test, you know, go for it. All right. So I wanted to be more informed. I wanted to be more knowledgeable. Information is power, you know. Yeah, of course, information is power, and then you have choices, and that's a, that's a whole other thing, because once you have this information, what do you do with it? I mean, you're tested that you have the, you know, the gene, which could mean that you could get the disease or you could not, then what do you do about it? I mean, those are really you, tough choices. Yeah. They're very tough choices, and, um, yeah, um, that's a big topic for me. Because yeah. <laughs> I'm open to that. I think that it's a decision that's very personal, and at the same time, it is, um, you can, we can't judge someone else for the decision make, they make in their situation because you never know the full story until you've been in the situation. So I, I tend to be someone that would use our Western medicine to continue to test and to be more informed and to then have the choice, and then again, not to make judgments about other people making such choices. Yeah, well, that's the kind of person you are, non-judgmental, and so am I. You're a business coach. I'm a social worker, but most people make judgments. So do we. <laughs> but um, 
I guess what I've learned through my own personal situation is that, you know, the more information we have, the more choice we have, and you never know what everybody else's big picture really is when it comes to something like this. Yeah, that's, uh, you don't know what everybody's big picture is because they usually only share about if you're 80% of it, and so you really don't know. You don't know what people's issues are. I mean, like Richard Cohen was talking about, you know, the medical establishment and how they deal with people with chronic illness. Uh, they 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 treat you as your disease, but the, that I think is exactly right. He, he said they treat you as a case number or a case like a case versus a person. Yeah, and I think what's related to that, and I've had experience teaching medical students at Albany Medical College here in, in, in New York how to deal and talk to patients about these very things. It depends on where the physician, the physician, he himself or herself are, are people with their own set of uh, uh, baggage. And so, and they influence your decision. They and they, you, yeah. yeah. And how comfortable they feel with chronic illness. And, I, you know, uh, I remember uh, doing a case about uh, diagnosing breast cancer for one of the students, and uh, she burst out crying because wow. she, her, her own mother had breast cancer. So she was really in tune to this because, you know, she in terms of empathizing with patients or women who had breast cancer. But, you know, so it depends on where the physician himself or herself is coming from in terms of how they deal with a with an illness or, or chronic illness or disease. Yeah, they're super clean slate, that's for sure. Yeah, right. <laughs> no people, exactly. I, I, we can get into the medical establishment if you want to. That's a, that's um, uh, my experience hasn't been such a good one either. I mean, I'm not saying everybody, but uh, you know, it's it's medi- medicine has become a big business. It's big business, and it's it is hard to separate the case from the people. But those that can are, I think, cherished doctors because if they're able to really treat you as a person, it's such a value as a patient. Pediatricians are, I think, a group of, of uh, doctors that happen to fall on the empathetic scale because to be a pediatrician, you really have to <laughs> you have to deal with mothers and fathers and kids, and it makes it. I, I think that they have a real dedication to the medical profession, and, they, and they're really on the bottom of the pay scale in terms of physicians. I mean, in terms of what they the time spent. And the uh, work that they do, they really don't get reimbursed in the same way, let's say, as a, as a, as a surgeon. And what do you think that the choice to go into um, a pe- being a pediatrician versus... Um a gynecologist? That's I was just going to say, <laughs> I had a doctor, a gynecologist. We'll talk about this next week because he felt very, very adamant about you have to be very clear about who you are and why you go into that field as a man. And he was the first one, this was like many years ago, who actually said that to me. Because I always thought about it, you know, why would a man go into gynecology? 30 seconds left, that's the question of the day. You're listening to Catherine Zox and Lauren Beller, and we are on the Voice America Women's Network. I'm your social worker with a microphone. Thanks so much for joining us today, and we'll see you next week. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Women's Channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversation with Catherine Zox.